0: Welcome back to Future Cities. I'm your host, Stephen Elzer. This month, we'll be following a similar theme from our conversation last episode with Yulia Zuban, where we learned about thermal comfort and how bus stop design can make people feel more comfortable as they wait. This month, we'll continue talking about extreme heat in Maricopa County, where Phoenix is located, and learn about some ongoing efforts to make the city cooler. Dr. Yohan Kim, who you may remember from our episode on safe-to-fail infrastructure, will be leading the discussion with a few other URF's SRN researchers and the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Phoenix. Without further ado, I'm going to hand it over
1: starting with Mark. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I jumped right in there. Uh, So, yes, Mark, um, I was originally from Vancouver, Canada, born and raised. and, And around 2006, I joined the City of Vancouver in sustainability. At the time, not a soul I knew had ever heard of the word sustainability before. So, really what that is just 11 years ago, 12 years ago, that how different things have changed and how much. So Vancouver at the time, shortly after that, adopted a goal to be the greenest city in the world. And I've now come to Phoenix. I've been here almost five years now. And it's with our goal of being the most sustainable desert city on the planet. So really changing uh, over, I've seen over my career of change in the topic of sustainability.
2: Great, great. I'm Melissa Guadaro, a PhD candidate at the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. And here I study um, what do I study? I came here after uh, many different careers, um, from marketing and advertising and some entrepreneurial ventures, and just before I came here, I actually was the United Nations representative for the American Association of University Women, and I'm very interested in social justice issues, and as such, I was interested in the social justice aspect of sustainability. So I came here to start my PhD and got involved uh, with the urban heat problem which was born out of my own frustration. Uh, When I first came here, I was trying to be really sustainable, and my bicycle had not yet arrived, so I walked to the bus stop, and I almost died on a concrete pad, waiting outside at 110 degrees for the free circulator bus. And I remember coming in and telling Chuck, you people.
3: Hello, yeah, I'm Chuck Redman, and um, other than listening to Melissa talk about the heat, uh, <laughs> I'm a professor of sustainability, but my training is actually as an anthropologist, archaeologist, and my early interests were in the origin of cities in the Middle East, and about 20 years ago, I decided that um, cities were my focus and that maybe We needed to think about cities in the future and making them better. And eventually, I, like Mark, learned the word sustainability. And so we think about sustainable cities. Um, And living a longtime resident of Phoenix, it's obvious that heat is a central challenge. And if there's anything we can do to make the future more livable and and productive and attractive, it'll be to mitigate the heat and to um, make outdoor activities all year round possible.
4: Great. Uh, thank you, everyone. It is actually our great pleasure that we can have you three from be- coming from different backgrounds and different regions and different cities. So we, I think we'll have a really interesting discussion today. So it's actually, um, I just want to share uh, like a quick information that I just read from a news article yesterday that the last year was the fourth hottest year ever recorded, according to NOAA and NASA and that the past five years have been the most five warmest years in the modern record. And then I know that you, because you three all shared your different background, and then you have spent uh, quite a time in Phoenix, Arizona, and from like three years up to how many years, 30 years. <laughs> so um, can you share how your experience with heat during summertime have changed over the years. Uh, what are your personal heat coping strategies during summer times in Phoenix? Who wants to go first?
2: Well, I've been here the shortest. I've been here the shortest amount of time, so I guess I should go first. Um, I make sure that I'm not outside for very long, and that I drink plenty of water, and that I uh, exercise only for a certain threshold period of time.
4: And then, do you s- like? Ex- do you see like? The heat extremes during the summers have been changes like drastically over the last three years, or was it do you feel the same?
2: The first year, just the comparison for a summer here compared to the summer summer in New York, was enough of a shocker. So uh, not, I really haven't experienced that much more heat over the three years here in Phoenix.
4: Great. I think we'll get to the midterm. Do more?
1: (laughs) I guess that's me. So yeah, five years. So I've actually, in a way, it's not a true five years in the sense that I've always loved the sun and the heat. And uh, we actually had a place in Palm Springs in Canada. That was our summer vacation place. Imagine going in the summer every summer to Palm Springs. And... (laughs) Actually, I was really concerned because both my wife and I are born and raised in Vancouver. And I, I, I thought, you know, there's no way she's going to want to move countries uh, and move cities. You know, all our family was there in Vancouver. And I, so I said, you know, if there's this opportunity in Phoenix. You know, what would you think about that? She says, are you kidding? I, I always wanted to live somewhere warm. So <laughs> it's certainly from someone who hasn't got the warmth. There's a definite appeal. appeal. Uh, then you come here and you see really hot days. And I guess at first initially you go, yeah, that's hot. All right. And um, but You know, as you spend more and more time here, you just learn to adapt. Like the trees are desert adapted. Well, humans can do that, too. And so you learn certain things. And so, you know, as a people, we certainly here, uh, we certainly learned how to work around and get around and move around such we can try to keep cool. I mean, that's not available to everyone. So it is a little bit inequitable. But for for many people, they can actually quite well function here in the summertime. I've stayed here all summer long and enjoy it. Um, But definitely you need some good strategies to do that.
3: Great. I'm going to follow up on what Mark said. I've been here the longest, and it's 35 years. (laughs) Uh, So that counts for something. And I must say that we've really adjusted and adjusted quickly. We moved here partly because I do like the desert. Uh, And it's an amenity, not a disadvantage. Um, But it's hot. I don't. You know, people tell me it's dry heat, which is true, but it's still hot. But part of that is get up early in the morning in the summer. Don't plan your main outdoor activities midday. um, uh, Do things in the evening. The problem that I've noticed, though, in the 35 years is you can really tell the difference in nighttime temperature. Um, When we first moved here, normal summer mornings would still be in the 60s or 70s at the hottest, and now uh, a morning that the lowest it'll get will be in the high 70s or 80s, and even worse on a few days. And there's a real difference there, and it's a difference that where eating dinner outside was sort of a, a, a desirable thing to do, it's it's a challenge now. So I think we have to do something, particularly about this rapidly changing nighttime temperature.
4: Thank you, everyone, for sharing your. Personal strategies. I think I really liked that um, Mark said. You know, like animals are adaptive and climate. uh, But peoples or humans are also adaptive to surrounding environments. And like personally, I when I look back um, four years ago, when I first arrived in Arizona, and then first summer, it was really, really miserable i was really depressed during summertime because i was i was enjoying going out for a picnic and then summertime here i w- had to just stay indoors and taking advantage of acs but as time goes uh, by you know i was mentally and physically adaptive to the heat and then and i think based on this our, our experience here i think it will be we can talk more about uh, our individuals and you all uh, individual's work. That's how you, how your work touches on mitigating these hit, extreme heat uh, experiences. So first off, Melissa, can you tell us why do we experience extreme heat more severe in urban areas than other areas? And what is the most concerning impact of extreme heat that you think?
2: Well, this is really following up on what Chuck was talking about, was uh, how the nighttime temperatures have increased. Where the Um, The low is now at a dangerous point, and there are periods over the summer where the temperature doesn't go below 85 degrees. And that's fine if you have air conditioning and you have access to uh, other cooling features, but that's not okay if you either can't afford your air conditioning or you're experiencing homelessness. So a lot of that is due to the urban form and the materials that we're using um, when we're building the city. And the concrete and the building materials retain heat and do not release them uh, overnight quickly anymore compared to a desert environment. It's called the urban heat island. And then
4: um, do you think, that I know through your research, you engage with communities to to uh, talk with them how their extreme heat uh, ex- experience are. Uh, very experience varies across different uh, population and different community groups. And then, do you identify a certain population or groups that are most vulnerable to these extreme heats in the urban areas?
2: Yes, uh, there are definitely areas that can experience as much as thirteen degrees Fahrenheit. Higher temperatures than other areas in the valley that have uh, greenery and cooling features, and these are some of the communities that we have been working with and it's a little heartbreaking to hear their story knowing that they are almost unnecessarily suffering from the heat and um, you talked about being depressed about going out in the summer. what we found is that there's really a fear about the summer and the 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 impending summer temperatures that are coming, because they know they're going to have increased cooling costs. They know that it's going to be really difficult to use public transportation. So there's this whole mental uh, component to it, mental health component to it, that I think that we need to be looking at more closely.
4: Mm -hmm. So now you're mentioning the mental, looking at mental component of it to to this. Extreme heat um, experience. That I know you're doing a really cool dissertation study as part of your program, and so I want to know more about like how do you study um, about this heat mitigation strategy of vulnerable communities, and then is there a specific study method that you are utilizing?
2: So there's actually two different things that I'm working on right now. One is to develop community heat action plans. And these are being co-created both with scientists here at ASU, with people from the Maricopa County Department of Health, and it's being led by the Nature Conservancy. And there we're really trying to have very tailored, contextual um, Plans that the community wants. And then my personal dissertation research is really talking about people's adaptive capacity and how could you have two people with identical demographics living in a vulnerable neighborhood and one is suffering so and the other one seems to be coping just fine. So I've been doing extended interviews within the community, and it's it's been very interesting because a lot of the previous research that's been done about adaptive capacity talks about social capital. And one of the questions they ask is, do you know your neighbors? And when I pose this question to any of the people that I've been interviewing, and the answer is always no, I don't know my neighbors. Well, I know them by name, but I don't really know my neighbors. And yet when you uh, delve deeper into it, they actually have a very rich social fabric. And there's a support system that I think that we can Really tap into both for um, helping them cope with the heat, but also education and um, certainly during heat emergencies as well.
4: Yes. Yeah, so um, you mentioned about social capital to deal with this uh, heat extreme, and then building communities to deal with this. And then, um, can do you have any like um, story that you want to? Particularly share from your interviews that how people trying to build social capitals or if they don't have why, how they see that, see, do they see the benefits of of having social capital to deal with this extreme
2: weather events, especially hits? Yeah. So, in fact, an interview I did just the other day was with a woman who has uh, two small children and feels really captive in the house during the summer because you can't go anywhere. Uh, On a much broader scale, I was really concerned about the children and their development. If you're not going anywhere and you're just in the house, how are you actually getting cultural uh, education and enrichment? But she was talking about how when you go out, she's really concerned because she has an older car that she doesn't want to get stuck on the road with these two small children. And um, I said, oh, that's really a fear. And she said, yeah, I just – I have that fear of getting stuck, but I know that I have a whole bunch of people that I can rely on. And it turns out that she has this church group that has 10 or 15 different families that all band together that at any point she could call them or, they, you know, if they needed help, they could call her. So I think that's really an important part. Uh, that backstop is a really important part in dealing with heat and adapting to it, particularly for a very vulnerable populations.
4: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear about your study. That when we think about like how how we how are we gonna deal with uh, extreme heats, and then when we think about solutions, we usually think about technology solutions, like you know building more shades on the bus stops or planting more trees, maybe. Um, uh, trying to highlighting or taking benefits from the ecosystem services, uh, but then also there are these components that are from the coming from the social system and social networks that you can rely on neighborhoods and that that can be also the mitigating solution and I think from coming from the engineering background, I think it 's like really fascinating that you are doing that research
2: thank you.
4: Mark, who has a different uh, perspective on um, this hit extremes as a city official. And I know that the city of Phoenix is putting various efforts to create a better living area for people in this desert city, and including uh, a collaborative initiative between the city and ASU called Cooler Phoenix. And can you tell us how it started and some of the key outcomes of this initiative? And if you know that there are If you want to mention any other projects going on in terms of dealing with extreme heat, I would love to hear more about it.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, and as I sort of in, in my intro, I was talking about how people here, they understand they live in a desert. Other cities, you know, you ask where they're from, they don't identify with their natural ecosystem, but here there's, you ask people where they're from, you know, they say where they live, they live in a desert and they recognize that. And there is some adaptation that people do and learn how they go and how they move around the city. But one of the things, in 2016, we developed these long-term environmental goals and we look for best practices of cities. And we did the, you know, the ones that many cities have adopted, such as, you know, zero carbon, zero waste and healthy ecosystems. And, our transportation, you know, robust transportation system. But one of the things that was kind of missing, learning missing after we kind of adopted them and they were all, you know, posted and said, okay, yes, we've adopted them now, was that we didn't really have any goal around heat and nor has any other real city have really looked at that as something. But we as sort of the epicenter of research on heat and as someone who experiences it all the time, that we really needed to have that. And so Actually, interestingly, I don't think, actually not by design, but the three of us in this room were actually chatting a few years ago and saying, what if we actually really had a comprehensive plan? There's been a you know, a proponent of research has been done at ASU and even other universities, but there's not really been pulling it together and say, what if we had a really strategic plan of how to move our city in the long term to be cool? And so we kind of uh, just grasped for names. We called it Cooler Phoenix. It's uh, just kind of an interesting uh, thing, was just by chance kind of came forward and we started asking people and talking. It was kind of, it's been the umbrella that we've kind of carried on this conversation for the last couple of years about really coming up with what, having an urban heat island mitigation plan that, you know, really really Really, really thoughtful presence because you know cities. uh, You know you don't if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. But we really want to say, how when we wake up 30 years from now, do we just say, oh, it's too hot to live here, or do we actually plan and say? Let's make our way there. And for most people, they just think about today. But it's really the city's job to Mm -hmm. say, start thinking in the long term and moving our city in that direction. So that's kind of been the umbrella by which we have really kind of moved that conversation forward. And a lot of really interesting things have come out of that conversation.
4: Mm -hmm. Is there like any specific uh, events that you remember or reminds like right now that as a part of this Cooler Phoenix
1: um, oh, I think I think Melissa's got a good suggestion here. I, was it, I gonna, thought you
2: were going to talk about heat-ready.
1: Uh, oh, yeah. So we actually, one of the things that catalyzed it was actually uh, Bloomberg came with a city challenge to bring a fort urban problem. And so we started, uh, and they had a million-dollar prize. And so we were thinking, oh, we've got to do something on heat. And so that was a real catalyst. So we started thinking about what would it be, um, because no city, were of any cities, we actually asked other cities, what would it be to be heat ready? They say, well, no, you tell us, you're the experts. And they kept everybody was recognized as we interviewed other cities that now we've done all the research and we know everything. We're the ones to be that define that. And so we really have been working on this concept of, and actually one of the professors here, David Hensley out at ASU, kind of had that plan of being heat ready the way some cities are storm ready. And so We've been working under that concept to say, let's prepare our city to be heat-ready in the long term. And so we've done lots of initiatives to try to look at that. And it's not just about actions, it's also about what policies do we need in place, what governance and funding do we need in place. About If we as a city spend a you know, billion dollars every year putting in capital projects, are we, are we, sh- we should really be having triggers in those to really help lessen the heat. And if we're going to replace 80% of our roads in the next 40 years, well, why aren't we making those better and le- more, uh, less ability to capture he- you know, heat so they are help with urban heat island? So that's being kind of an umbrella and really kind of an interesting, exciting project. Now, sadly, we are extremely disappointed. I was depressed for two days that we didn't get it. <laughs> but um, but, sure but still, but, but we were, we went right down to the final five or something like that. So oh, we, were, we wow. thought we were going to make it, yeah so it was just didn't quite make it but it was we were deeply disappointed um, <laughs> and uh but uh on the other hand actually we're still gonna go ahead with this whole heat ready plan because it is something that's really needed
4: um actually it's really interesting to like hear that you know one initiative is called cooler phoenix and this another effort is called heat ready so it sounds like one is like trying to actually cool down the city itself and then another is then are we let's try to get ready for higher heat or more extreme heats and then so I was curious that as a city pr- practitioner, Mark, so what would be the ultimate goal of the heat mitigation strategies and efforts of the city and like is it to reduce the heat mortality by reducing actual temperatures around the cities? and Or is it to just having more um, plans and surgeries and activities to increase outdoor activities for recreational and health? Or is it just to maintain business as usual so that we can do what we do right now in the warmer future?
1: Well, actually, we've kind of thought about you know, one of the good news that we, as we've been thinking about it is that oh, thank goodness we don't need to cool our entire city. We just need to cool where people will be, where the most vulnerable populations are. So it's really narrowed the scope to say let's be really strategic about where we cool our city. And and it's really the other good news is that we don't have to do the whole city. And the also thing is we have a long time to do it. Really start planning uh, towards that. Um, you know that uh, you know what we thought of the future. I mean, we're now the future ain't what it used to be. Uh, the um, if we look at 2050 or 2060 of what will Phoenix be like, that it's it's not about predicting what that's going to be like. We actually will have an influence on what that will be in the future. So we can actually de- de- be part determinant in what our, our city will be based on our actions. And so it's really doing that long-term planning perspective and looking at strategies and, and very much focusing on vulnerable populations and vulnerable areas. And, um, you know, it's a it's a classic understanding that we always, as people, over- Overestimate what we can do in a year, but we far underestimate what can be done in twenty. And so we need to very strategically be thinking about okay, well, let's start now, walking in that path, and kind of seeing how how much and how much we could do in that time period.
4: Thank you, Mark. I just have to thank you that you know we have a chief sustainability officer at in City of Phoenix, and then that we can work with you. And the one thing that I really appreciate. Uh, for City of Phoenix and you, is that we do lots of collaborative work uh, with city practitioners, including Mark, you and um, uh, I. Real, it's really good. Um, it's really beneficial for researchers that how their research ideas can become actually implemented in cities, into practice and policies. And then um, I wanted to wanted to ask you that if the collaborative work uh, with researchers actually influence climate change adaptation policy but you said you are go- you are doing it but also that's what like how do you actually uh, integrate research into practice if you can share it more about it
1: Wow, three questions in a row. I feel like I'm on the hot seat. (laughs) So, um, the, you know, I would say that in general, um, universities across the U.S. are very much focused on, you know, sort of has, have a tradition of, you know, the goal is to be published and that. And, and cities, you know, there hasn't really been a strong relationship with many cities and the local universities on research. And, and there really was, has been, uh, in the last number of years, particularly as we had this Cooler Phoenix conversation to really have, let's have practical research. And it's actually been, uh, the, a very catalyst because you can't, how can anyone come out with policies if there's not really the research behind those? Like, for example, one of the catalysts that we've discovered, because we we're kind of looking at, okay, there's 120 research papers that have been done on heat. They send out a, you know, a parliament of students every year to study everything under the sun. Uh, and so... Um, so he liked that. That's yeah, good. Um, so, but you know, what is what is it all saying, and, and how can it inform policy? And so, some of the things we discovered. One of them was really interesting: was that they studied two neighborhoods just two miles apart, and there was a 13 degree temperature difference, surface temperature difference. And so, that has been as we've talked to city council members and we've talked to others in the community. They say, "Oh, I want to be in that community that's 13 degrees cooler." You know, I really. And so, it some of the research that is it's just. Prov- coming up with really straightforward answers, but if that just stayed in the research realm, it would actually have no influence. But, you know, that and, and others, we're looking at um, one area that's really interesting and we're looking at developing here in ASU is actually to have study walk sheds and where people are walking, um, sort of the, so looking at things like, okay, if you're, tr- if you're you know, zero-car household, a neighborhood, there's a lot of zero-car households, there's going to be a lot more people walking in those neighborhoods, where are they going, where are the transit stops and identifying those walk sheds and saying, look, those are the ones we should create some cool corridors and shading where let's just put the coolest areas where the people are walking. And so we actually, in one of the surveys of the community, we asked them, if you had a shaded walkway from where you live to nearby shops and stores, would you walk or bike more often than you do now? And 86% of people said, yes, absolutely. You know, it's, it's in a way obvious, but it's like, okay, if we really want people to get out of their cars and out of our car household that's very much here in Phoenix, has been, you know, hey, get a nice cool car, air-conditioned car. It's we really need to create those cool corridors. And so that's, the research has been really valuable in really turning the light on of what we really want to do here as a city.
4: Great! It's good to hear that you know research is like um, is actually um, helping the city to create a better place, better living place. So thank you, Mark, for answering three consecutive <laughs> questions because we don't get uh, city practitioners um, uh, frequently in the pocket, So I have to get you know the most out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so now uh, we have you know our third guest that's that. Um, As I mentioned in the beginning, that uh, Chuck has um, recently started a research initiative at ASU with uh, lots of scientists uh, on campus in a partnership with Maricopa County for the Healthy Urban Environment, called HUE. Right, (laughs) and then um, I think it will be really interesting to hear more about it. Can you tell us about this initiative?
3: Well, I'd be happy to and and it's it's starting, but it has a a big vision and a big goal, and a lot of that vision comes from what Mark was talking about, which has been our long time now partnership with the city of Phoenix and some of the other cities around the valley. but the point is and uh, is that we're all here largely because we want to be here because Phoenix is a great place to live and to do things, and we want to keep it that way and I have to say that. You know, a few years ago, I put up well with the summer heat and wouldn't think of leaving because of it. But a couple of years ago, it, it really became apparent to me and others that this is a long term threat to the city, to its viability, to its desirability, uh, and to its economic survival, and that um, we need to do what can be done. And I think a big part of that story is working together with people in neighborhoods and larger communities and with city officials and staff like Mark. Um, But to think of what it takes to make a place desirable. It isn't automatic that five degrees makes all the difference. It makes more difference if you have a pleasant place to walk, even if the actual temperature isn't that much less. Uh, And so we're trying to say, what does it take? And with a bunch of people getting together and a nice opportunity afforded to us by the county, uh, we're going to invest some money in working together to take some of the science findings that ASU people have been doing and put them together with some of the needs and perceived challenges that community people see and sort of moving science from the laboratory into the neighborhood and seeing if we can test out things. now. No projects big enough to to totally change a city and so what we're we're looking for is is this middle ground of testing out and sort of demonstrating that something makes a difference and once we do that we think that cities and private developers and individual families will take up the things that really matter
4: Thank you Chuck um, yeah that's uh that's really um, great that you know we are trying to move science and transfer science from lab to the actual communities and then in the city and i noticed that one thing that um, is particularly um, uh, noticeable in this project is that it also looked at the air quality of arizona that is affected by heat and um, i would like to know uh, more about how this the relationship with the heat and air quality in arizona and what's our current understanding and and of course, probably it's limited understanding, so we are trying to do this project, so can you share about it?
3: Well, I can give you a little bit of insight, but really um, the background of why air air and heat were put together wasn't so much one cause the other, even though there are strong relationships, but more if you step back and say, what are the environmental challenges facing our region? Air quality and extreme heat come right to the front, if not are uh, the overwhelming challenges facing us. So it was more saying what are the big issues than these two issues are tied together. Having said that, though, there clearly is a relationship and and I think looking at it, we're focusing on on air and air quality and, and extreme heat. You could also add available water to that nexus because a lot of the solutions to things we're talking about heat may involve increased water use. And so we have to bring this nexus of issues together. The heat-air one is exacerbated partly because one of the big air quality challenges this region faces is particulate matter. And it's behind respiratory diseases and the brown cloud and things people perceive as dangerous and in reality are real health hazards. And there is a relationship in a number of ways, and part of it is just the fact that the ground dries out. And when it becomes windy, we get dust storms, and dust storms uh, become sometimes extreme. and We call them haboobs, and they're on the newspaper across the country. But even on a day-to-day basis, construction sites, gravel roads, um Blowing dust off your driveway, all of these things uh, add a challenge to the air. And one of the things we're we're looking at are there ways that we can more effectively damp down the, that risk to replace the desert crust that kept dust storms in a natural setting from happening, uh, work with construction companies to... Not just spray plain water, but water that actually holds, bonds with the dust and holds it down. So there's some real connections there. There's connections with ozone, which may be our other biggest Threat, but the, there the connections are more complex. Definitely, heat increases ozone production, but then plants also increase it, yet plants reduce heat. And so, we have to find some sort of trade off solutions that really work to our big benefit. But that's what this project's about bringing people from diverse approaches together to talk about it and talk about it with the practitioners who are out trying to make a difference in the communities
4: sounds really important and I look forward to uh, hearing more about uh, the research and then the outcomes as I as we go um, in the future and you know it's also interesting to hear about the uh, the air quality becoming an issue here in Arizona um, so where I Uh, come from Seoul, South Korea, the air quality is a really, really big problem right now because the yellow dust and it's such a dense city. But when we think about Phoenix, Arizona, it's not a really dense city. It's, you know, it's really sprawl, but even though there are lots of, you know, vehicle use and then the emissions from them, but still, I thought that Arizona and Phoenix has amazing uh, air quality because the skies are always blue. Then, like, then actually, last uh, December, my mom visited me from Seoul, Korea. flew from Seoul, Korea, and then she, like, when right after she landed. She pointed out the sky and then say, "Look at the cloud. They are yellow and brown. They're like Seoul." I was like, "I never noticed. I was always look at the blue sky and not the cloud that were just, you know." Uh, hanging there yeah, in, the mi- in the middle in the middle I'm really glad to uh, hear about this uh, project and um, back to the UREX and the, the, uh, the your new project Hugh, that um, you know it is really important the research working closely with local governments to tackle this you know environmental challenges and to make the scientific solutions actually deployable and then can be transferable in practice. Um, and i want to hear about uh, more about you that uh, how cities and researchers can co-benefit and how we have been co-benefiting each other in advancing urban resilience and you know what do you think are the opportunities and barriers like coming from this transdisciplinary research projects
3: well thanks yoan i'll spend the next 2 hours talking about that <laughs> if it's okay um, it, it's it's great that you've brought this up, and I think it follows directly from what Mark's been talking about, the opportunities availed by having cities and universities take each other seriously. And I think I I need to give a certain amount of, of credit to uh, President Michael Crow, who's made this one of the top priorities for ASU and has walked the walk on really trying to emphasize that a lot of what we do may be theoretical and what people call pure academic research, but he's really pushing that more and more of the energy of ASU be devoted to what would be called solutions or more applied research or co-production of knowledge with people from the local community. Uh, And I think this is important because in the last analysis, um, science isn't about producing something that's abstract and leaving it somewhere for someone to pick up and make invent an application for we can be much more productive if from the beginning we're talking about what are the challenges where can they be deployed what difference will it make what are the unintended consequences and all of that comes from working together with people on the ground uh, in in real neighborhood or city context um, I think you know there's a number of ways we can we can go with this but uh, particularly in the definition of what's important and what are the problems. Uh, There's no way we can sit alone on campus and know those things. And then there's some very practical benefits. And speaking of City of Phoenix and cooler Phoenix and heat ready, um, we obviously talked about a lot of things, but then some real opportunities were made available because the city was already intent upon doing things, renovating neighborhoods, renovating streets. And they said, well, we've got lots of ideas, but if you have more ideas, we should pool our thoughts on this. And I think there's some real traction there, and there's this what may someday be looked back on as one of the great examples of city-university collaboration in, in the Edison East Lake District of of Phoenix, where a project that the city initiated and got the funding for hopefully will benefit from its interaction with scientists and, and professionals from ASU. Um, we'll see, but I think we'll be looking back and in future years to saying this was one of the great breakthrough um, examples of collaboration.
4: Thank you, Chuck. Yeah, I think, you know, um, I know that, you know, like Melissa doing her dissertation work that, you know, you can just do your work at the desk, sitting at the desk, on the desk, and then, you know, just reading articles and then trying to run models and stuff, but you actually you know go out there and then reach out to communities to talk to them and to listen to them and then you know it takes time you have to build trust uh, between communities and also you know that we have that we have with you know city like with mark so i think i i think as a researcher and as a part of UX um team that's you know i really
2: appreciate these collaborations um uh, and I also think that the communities have great ideas that researchers in the city hadn't quite thought of yet. So in the same Edison Eastlake community during our um, heat action planning work, one of the residents there was just shocked to find out that pavements can be 150 degrees or more and she said well what do you do if somebody passes out you shouldn't be laying laying them on the pavement we really need to have heat certification training similar to first aid training that's specific to living in the urban environment in in phoenix and that makes perfect sense to everyone and it's something that we're going to probably follow through on uh, in the very near future but we would have never have thought that thought about that had we not uh, interacted with the community
1: And I think, yeah, I think about that. It's really interesting... Sort of the thinking about that, in that you know, normally we would say in respect, oh, this person has a PhD, you know, or oh, that you know, they have they're really knowledgeable. But a lot of these members in their community, they have a they have a PhD in, in life in their community, and they, they really understand mm-hmm. what it's like to live in a place more so than any researcher will ever know. They know what specific areas of the pavement get really hot. They know when the monsoon rains come, which where it's going to flood. They have a really good understanding of oh, that's been tried. We did that, but that did. not work you know and so just really taking advantage of that this knowledge that people have of where they live and and together discovering okay what is it that we need and you know the other one is interesting there's actually a great story that was just in um a chicago paper today uh, about they couldn't understand why they were giving away these free trees and 25 percent of the people were not wanting them and giving them saying no we don't want them go away and they they asked them and and so they researched and found out why people didn't want them and they said well you know, we, they didn't ask us what we want or they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have any sense of, they said, well, we don't, what's the city going to do? Are they going to charge us more taxes? They just had no idea. It wasn't their idea. And mm-hmm. so it's really important if you, even if you have some good ideas to really ask them, okay, what is it you need and want? And together, you know, co-create your community with the community, uh, the, the, what kind of city you want to be.
4: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you all sharing your um, interesting stories and the really great works. Um, And um, I think uh, something that we do in podcast to wrap up an episode is to summarize your work or the topic of the episode in the form of haiku. But before we get to the haiku, is there any last comment that you want to um, tell to our audience?
1: Well, I think... One one comment I guess I can make on behalf of us all and uh, as we're kind of wrapping this up is that, you know, the... Often we'll look at adversity and and feeling the adversity of the heat and going, it's a negative thing, you know, that, but actually it's through adversity that we become resilient. Adversity is really the midwife of resilience. And so if we want to be a resilient people, resilient people, that it's actually in that, that it's the very things that we really need to recognize that not run away from it, but actually have it part of who we are. And uh, that can, uh, as a city, we can really grow and be strong in the context of extreme events.
4: Thank you, Mark. I'm really, really happy that I have you here. <laughs> and then we, we can tell your story and the City of Phoenix story to our audience. So, everyone ready for the haiku? Yes. Okay, then let's start with Chunk.
3: <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm not an expert at this, but okay. Oh, it's hot here. Let us make this city cool. Comfort is what counts.
4: That was great,
2: actually. (laughs) Let's see if you say the same about this one. (laughs) Growing urban heat, an inconvenience for some, but others suffer.
4: So we have to get to and reach out to others. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's a hot breeze. There is something we can do. Drink water, plant trees.
4: (laughs) Great. Yeah. Mark was really, really (laughs) ready for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Chuck, Melissa, and Mark for joining uh, me and us, our podcast today. And it was really, really great and pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX, as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.